starting at verse 5, and we're going to read through uh, the end of verse 9. I have to tell you that uh, I chose this uh, passage and this topic long before the events of this week, and it just seems to me that this is a, a providential gift from God. So pray with us this morning as we try to focus on what it means to uh, uh, encounter some of God's hard, spot, hard spots in life and pray with the Coviello family. I, uh, I'd ask you and keep them in mind this week as they undergo uh, just a real time of trauma in the Lord's hands. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5. Strange passage to dressing slaves. The slaves... Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but, like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Have you ever been uh, asked when you're opening a, a Bible passage or a teaching to somebody, especially maybe to an unbeliever, uh, the question, but isn't that just your interpretation? It's frustrating, isn't it? I think it's especially frustrating when they don't actually say it out loud. You just kind of see it in their eyes. But isn't that just your interpretation? There's a rule for interpreting the Bible that says every passage of Scripture has one proper interpretation, but many possible applications. And that's why pastors, preachers, teachers can come up with so many different perspectives on God's Word. I think Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 is a, it's just a wonderful example of how that operates. For example, literally, it does refer to slaves. In Paul's day, it had a literal application. There were slaves. It was a slave society. And literally, Paul was addressing slaves. In some cultures in our own day who still have slaves, it still has a literal interpretation. But there's also a familiar application, maybe some of you have heard it, that goes something like this. Well, in our North American culture, we don't have slaves, so slaves, well, that must equal, you know, workers uh, or employees. Masters, well, we don't have slave owners any longer, so masters, that must equal bosses and employers. So, and this is a good possibility for a sermon, how to be a good boss or worker. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's in keeping with the spirit of the text. It's not abusing Scripture. It's an application of the text, even if it doesn't get to the exact literal interpretation. Are you following me? So there's one literal interpretation of Scripture, but there are many possible applications. That's one of the reasons why we can find so many things in the Bible. It's practical. 
useful, and I'm sure there are other possibilities here. But I want you to think with me about something that may be a little closer to the text. As we get closer to this meaning, this, this sense, this idea of the, of the idea of being a slave, let's begin this morning by talking about taking a closer look at the situation of slaves in Paul's day. As near as we can tell, in the Roman Empire that Paul inhabited, there was something like 60 million slaves spread throughout the Roman Empire. Now, to give you some idea of what that means, one out of every five people you bumped into in the Roman Empire, didn't matter whether it was a farmhand or a miner or a maid or a craftsman or a doctor or even a Roman senator, some of them were slaves. In fact, Rome was so addicted to slavery that even slaves owned slaves. Now, if you lived in the capital city itself, the capital of Rome, instead of the one out of every five people, it was one out of every three people that was a slave. And while it may be true, as John Stott has somewhere pointed out, that Afro-American slavery was worse than Roman and Roman slavery was worse than Greek, and Greek slavery was worse than Hebrew, still wouldn't you agree with me? A slave is a slave is a slave. And it's hard for me to imagine any worse condition than to live my life in slavery. And as a matter of fact, it was a very difficult life indeed. In the Roman Empire, for example, let's just mention two or three things. There was cruelty. In AD 90, a law had to be passed forbidding the physical mutilation of slaves. Now, you know, you own a slave. Do you ever wake up grumpy some morning and a slave crosses you, does something wrong? Well, they would lop little sections of their finger off to punish them, or maybe just a slit in the nostril just to teach them not to do this anymore, or they would knock a tooth out, you know, to make their point to the slave, or if you were butting in and you saw something you shouldn't be looking at, they would gouge your eye out. Slaves were branded, they were flogged, they were maimed, and of course we know slaves were even crucified. In fact, crucifixion was reserved for slaves in the Roman Empire, which is one of the reasons that made it such a difficult thing for Jesus to endure and such a difficult task for preachers to explain how the king of the universe ended up on a cross. So there was cruelty. There was also indignity. Roman slaves were not allowed legal marriage rights. They only had common law marriages. And so you would live with your partner, but uh, remember, the master owned you. And if the master chose for his or her economic benefit to sell one of your children, you had no recourse. The child belonged to them. If the master chose to sell your husband or wife, they belonged to the master. They would be sold. And you had no recourse over the disposition of your children or even your mate. There was hopelessness. I, I remember when I uh, uh, was studying in grade school, and we were introduced to this uh, beautiful, beautiful book on uh, North American history, what happened in our country. And we turned to this one page during the time of the Civil War, and I can remember seeing the picture of this, of this black man, this slave, and just looking at the picture and seeing the emptiness 
I, I still can see the emptiness in his eyes. The book of Proverbs says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. There was hopelessness in this condition of slavery in the Roman Empire. Well, I tell you all that to give you a sense of the culture that Paul was writing to. And now let me introduce you to a transitional, sort of a syllogism of, of how we can get closer to this text. This is the way my mind wraps itself around this text. My major premise is this. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 is about slaves, but not just any kind of slave. It's about Christian Slaves, People just like you and me. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of them were literally slaves in the Roman Empire. Minor premise. Slaves. That is equivalent to very hard living. Would you agree? A very difficult life. So the conclusion then is, I think Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9, if we look at this really carefully, really closely, I think Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9, would you agree that this is a passage about Christians and it's especially designed to teach Christians how to live when life is painful or difficult or hard and there are few, if any, prospects of getting out of those circumstances. With that in mind, it seems to me that this passage can give us some principles. I I find four of them here. You may find more or less. But I find four principles for living Christianly in the face of very difficult circumstances. Let's take a look at some of these. The first one I find right here in chapter chapter 6, verse 5. And I don't like it, and I don't think you're going to like it. We are Americans, after all. We like our freedom. And so read with me. You see what it says? Slaves, stand up for your rights. Oh, wait. Slaves, start a political action group. No, wait. Slaves, demand that you be free. No, wait. Slaves, you must be free to be happy. No, wait. It doesn't say any of that stuff, does it? And this is the part about the Bible that I don't like. I can now tell you, I can start to wiggle and waffle and make all kinds of room and say, well, now, you know, the Bible wasn't really meant to be taken literally and we're back, aren't we, too? But isn't that just your interpretation? But I think there's an important point here when the Bible says slaves obey and i think the principle goes something like this the principle is i call it god's pattern in our life this is probably the hardest point i'll make this morning so follow real carefully with me god's pattern remind ourselves that god's normal method is not to remove me from difficult circumstances Did I really say that? God's normal method in the Christian life is to leave me in those circumstances and to release me as His servant for the glory of God in the midst of trials and hardships and difficulties and pain. That's His normal pattern. That's His normal pattern. 
Now, I can see that in any number of places all throughout Scripture. The other one I'll just mention to you is in a passage very similar to this. You don't need to turn there, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul is again writing to slaves. And the passage goes something like this. It says, Each one of you should retain the place in life the Lord has assigned him. Were you a slave when you were called, read, saved, or became a Christian? Were you a slave when you became a Christian? Don't let it trouble you. Interesting. Interesting. Now, Jim, you sort of painted us into a box. Does that mean there's nothing we can do? Does that mean we, we can't resist this at all? That we always have to, you know, just accept? No, no. Paul added this next phrase, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. I think that tells us to go to the doctor when we're ill. I think that tells us that we're to pray when we have difficulty. I think that means we're to call the elders of the church to pray over those who are sick. I think it means that it's okay to do uh, you know, a civil rights movement in a country that allows for that. I think it's okay to stand up for these things. I think it's okay to do all those things. It's not okay to so get focused on release from the problem that that just consumes me and overwhelms me and takes my eyes off of God. It says, you know what? Difficulty is going to come your way. In normal circumstances, I would expect you to be able to endure that. If you can get out, get out. But whatever you do, don't let this thing eat you alive. Get the principle? That's the principle. It's a hard one. It's a difficult... It's easy for me to preach this. I'll tell you tomorrow, I'll go and I'll hurt, and I'll immediately disobey this principle. It's a hard one. It's a maturity principle, one that we always have to grow toward and grow in. It's what, uh, remember the old preacher Warren Wiersbe? Warren Wiersbe used to call this the go or grow principle. Uh, When difficulty comes our way, we can either run away from it or we can embrace it and grow in it. Now, this is what I have discovered, that when I run away from some difficulty in my life, I can get a little bit away and then almost exactly the same kind of thing will happen again. Because God is using that as a growth point in my life. And He's going to make me face up to it. I'll tell you a story to illustrate this. A story about a lady. I'm going to call her Mary Smith. The name has been changed to protect the not-so-innocent. Mary uh, was uh, one of the people who attended uh, a church that I pastored one time. And she was saved from the absolute depths of lostness. When I mean that, she was sort of like that woman in John chapter 3, the woman at the well that had been married seven times and the husband that she was currently living with was not her husband. Now, that was Mary's story. That was Mary's story. She was so lonely in her latest relationship, and she called it a marriage, but she didn't really think it was one. She was so lonely in that relationship that she would go out on Friday nights just to pick up men in bars. Uh, That was the kind of existence. She was just looking for some kind of closeness or intimacy or, or, or happiness. She became a Christian, I'll tell you how in just a minute, but um, we, uh, my wife and I used to do this Bible study for uh, some of the new believers in the church, and she attended one of the Bible studies. It's just so fascinating to watch her come in. We'd be studying something along, and she would just be, and all of a sudden a profane word would come out. 
can you say that in a Christian Bible study? And they, I mean, they were pretty, pretty raw words, I've got to tell you, because she was from that side of life. And, you know, you have to deal with that for a while. Now, it's not that you say leave people where you find them, but for a while, you know, this, this gal had had tough background. She was toxic. She was toxic for a lot of groups. I'll tell you how she became a Christian. Just so empty. She had walked into a bookstore and stolen a Bible. She knew she needed something. She knew it had to be in the Bible. So she just walked in and stole the Bible. I mean, to steal a Bible. Uh, in fact, even today when I'm driving along in my car, I'll leave my car door open with my Bible and say, maybe somebody will steal it. Maybe they need it because of Mary and the, and the things she did. Well, she just reading the Bible on her own, she became a believer. And where I first came, she'd already become a Christian just by God's Holy Spirit speaking to her through the Bible. I don't know how that happened. God, God makes those things happen. She sneaked into my church one day and she sat in the back seat. That's how I became acquainted with Mary. And, and after a period of time, as she started to grow, she got under conviction that she had stolen this Bible. And uh, so she came in for pastoral counseling, and she tells me the whole story. And uh, now here's the clinker in this whole deal. Uh, the owner of the bookstore was the chairman of the board of elders in the church I served. And, you know, it, it, he was a nice guy, but he could look a little rough. You know how chairmen of the board of elders. Our chairman isn't here, is he, Jack? Where are you? <laughs> Looked a little rough. And she said, well, Pastor Fan, what do you think I should do? Now, see, I went to seminary. I know what you do. I took counseling course. I don't know, Mary. What do you think you should do? <laughs> that has saved me so much trouble. That's a marvelous, marvelous counseling thing. Well, I could have offered to take Mary's Bible back for her. I've got to tell you, it wasn't one of these little tiny Bibles that I've got here. I don't know how she got the thing out. As I recall, it was one of those great big uh, study Bibles, you know, one of those huge $100 leather bound. How do you get one of those out of a bookstore in a box? So she said, well, I know exactly what I have to do. She took the Bible back. She paid full price for the Bible. And then she took another Bible just like and said, I, want, I don't want anything to do with that Bible. That represents the old Mary. And I want this new Bible. And I want to pay full price for this Bible. Now, that may not seem like a lot. That's a baby step. But that's the way Christians grow. Does it surprise you when I tell you that every time I hear about Mary Smith, she has continued to grow? Not because she ran away from difficulty, because she allowed God to work through her in her in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. Some of you people are hurting and struggling and fighting and warring. And the pastor and Jason and me and Rick, we want to reach in and we want to take that hurt away. We want to solve it. We want to deal with it. And we can't. And we go home and we lay awake at night and wonder, how can we... And you know what? God knows. And sometimes the best thing for you, oftentimes the best thing for us, is just to have to hang in there and trust and hurt and trust and hurt. That's principle number one. That's the normal way I believe God grows us in the Christian life. You may struggle with that. Talk to me sometime if you do. But I think that's a biblical principle. The second thing I, I, I see here 
is in uh, verses 5 and 6. If the the first principle is uh, God's pattern, the second principle tells us to focus on God's love. As I'm looking at verse 5, I'm just amazed at the number of uh, references in here to the, uh, the, the master words. To the, to the Lordship words, but to the Lordship and Master words that belong to our Savior, uh, the Christ that we learn to love. So see that phrase in verse 5, Obey your earthly masters with fear and sincerity, just as you would obey Christ, the Lord we love, o- obeying Him. I see something again like that in verse 6, Obey them not only to win their favor, but like slaves of Christ. Slaves of Christ, the balance between the two. And then in verse 9, uh, the last part of verse 9 where he talks to masters, he says, don't show any favoritism because uh, God is their master and yours. Master, but he loves you. I think uh, from those three words, let me draw some uh, uh, possible applications here for you this morning. I think it's possible to make three mistakes when difficulties come our way. Mistake number one, I think it's possible for us to acknowledge that God is Lord, Master of the universe. But to begin to suspect, and maybe even to the point of denial, that He really cares, that He really loves. Some of you will recognize the name C.S. Lewis. He's one of my favorite all-time authors ever. I mean, he, I just wish I could write like the man writes. Um, C.S. Lewis was uh, a college professor, I guess we could call him, and he was a single guy, and uh, you know he he, he uh, was one of those professorial types. And it wasn't until very late in his life that he met the love of his life, a woman named Joy Davidman Gresham. Now, some of you will have seen the movie uh, Shadowlands. I've got to tell you that the movie isn't the best representation of the actual facts of his life. You can read the book, A Grief Observed, and that will give you a little bit better picture of who this man is and some of the agony he went through. There's also a PBS broadcast that's much, much better presentation. But So he met Joy Davidman Gresham, and Joy was diagnosed with cancer. And they prayed, as Christians should, and God marvelously gave remission. For a period of time in Joy's life, but then the cancer came roaring back, and and just took her away in a brutal way. Just wasted her and just took her away, and so she died of cancer on July 13, 1960. Now C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this journal. Originally, it was an anonymous journal. He didn't even attach his name to it. He later published it with his name attached to it. But he wrote this journal called A Grief Observed. And and here's one of his confessions. He says, It's not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is uh, coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion, I fear, is not, so there is no God after all. The conclusion, I fear, is, so this is what God is really like. You see, it's possible to to believe that God is Lord, but He doesn't love me, and that He's cruel, and that He's unkind. And there are a whole host of people that harbor that view today. That's a mistake. 
There's another possible mistake. It's possible to acknowledge that God loves you, but that He can't actually do anything about it. He's not really the Lord of the universe. He's not really the Master that we've seen here. Uh, a rabbi, his name is Harold S. Kushner, famously wrote a book several years ago entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Uh, the idea was conceived when his three-year-old son Aaron was diagnosed with progeria. You know, that, that uh, rapid aging disease so that little six-year-old kids look like they're about 50 years old. Aaron died two days after his 14th birthday. And so Rabbi Kushner wrote this book in part just to explain to himself, make sense of the pain that he went through with the whole deal. And one of the statements in the book is, I believe in God. Okay. And then he says, but I recognize his limitations. Do you hear what he just said there? A limited God. A God who cares that we can still believe in, but... He can't really do anything. If he could do anything, why didn't he do something was his question. So he was living in the bumper sticker culture at the time, and he posed a motto of his own to put on the back of our bumpers, My God is not cruel. Sorry to hear about yours. Interesting. I think that's a mistake to believe that God loves us but can't do anything. There's a third possible mistake from a biblical character, Old Testament, the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 42. Jacob and Joseph, and you remember the whole story there? Jacob had favorites, and Joseph was one of his favorites, and the other brothers hated him as a result, and so they sold him into slavery. And years later, they re-encounter Joseph, who's now become a ruler in uh, Egypt. And um, Joseph wants to bring some reconciliation about it. And part of that is to get his father to come back. And so he says, let me keep your younger brother. You go back and bring your father home. When the other brothers report this to Jacob, and here's the verse, Genesis chapter 42, verse 36. Just jot it down. It says, their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me, meaning the other boys, you've deprived me of my children. He's still showing favoritism. My favorite children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin too? Now here's the phrase. Everything is against me. And i got to wonder how that phrase got in the Bible. That's a secular viewpoint. There are no things against us. Christians believe in the providence of God. This universe we live in is a personal universe, not a thing universe. There are no chances, Christians believe. There are no accidents, Christians believe. There are no happenstances, Christians believe. There's God. God is behind the universe. There's a personal, the force. But it's not a it the force happens to be Him, God. And how did Jacob come to the point that he denies both the love and the lordship of God and only sees a thing out there? That's a mistake. There's no solutions in any of those three patterns. There are no solutions there. Well, what then is the solution? And that brings me to the, the fourth one. Um, the proper response, I think, 
And that's the response that I think Ephesians is holding out for us. To acknowledge the lordship of the loving God in everything you experience. And it's a tough one. We're at Romans 8.28. God's in charge. God will work everything together for good to those that love Him, even if it isn't good at first. And that verse does not say everything is good. But it says God will take everything and work it toward good. That's what that verse says. Joseph said it later on when he said to his brothers, you may have intended this to harm me. And see, this is part that allows me to keep from always pointing the finger of other people. I don't care what your motives are. I don't care whether you made a mistake or not. I don't have to make you my enemy. Why? Whatever your intentions are, Joseph said, God intended it for good. You're not my enemy. God is going to take every single thing that comes my way and He's going to eventually use that for my benefit and for His glory. Does that make sense to you? Do you see that there? That's a spiritual thing. It takes the Spirit of God to plow that deeply into our hearts. That's not an easy thing to grab. But that's the second principle. Third principle, real quickly, that I learned from this passage, not only uh, God's uh, pattern and not only God's love, but God's focus. Uh, when I look at this passage, I, I like to do this. Some of you have seen me do this in one of the ABFs. I like to go through here and count the emphasis on the words. And I see that in five short verses, there are five references to the Lord in different ways. So you see the word Christ in verse 5. You see the word Christ in verse 6. You see the reference to the Lord in verse 7. You see the reference to the Lord in verse 8. And you see the reference to the Master in verse 9. Five short verses surrounding this topic of difficulty. And in those five short verses, it's almost as if these verses are intent on focusing us on the right thing, or in this case, the right person, which is the Lord. Where you focus, and here's the principle, where you focus determines your ability to cope. And I can tell you when you're failing, and you can tell me when I'm failing. You can tell me where my focus is just by listening to me talk. My hurts, my problems, my pains. Where am I focused? My Lord, my Savior, my Master. Where am I focused? Where you focus determines your ability to cope. Great illustration of this. It's in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. You don't need to turn there either. I'll tell you the story. It's a story of Peter walking on water. Now, I think that really happened. I'm a modern man. I don't know how it happened, but I believe it really happened. So here's the story. These men are on a boat. The storm blows up. Jesus comes walking by the boat. The storm says there's a wind out there. They spot him late at night, sort of in the ghostly hour. Peter, always the first to, you know, to say something. Peter says, hey, Lord, you know, I've never done that. I've never walked on water. I'd like to try that, Lord. What do you think? And the Lord says, Okay, let's give it a shot. So Peter steps outside the boat. Now I've got to tell you, that first step wasn't the hardest one. It's this step that's the tough one. Don't believe me? Try it in your bathtub this afternoon. Fill it with a little water. 
give it a shot. And the water held. I don't know how. I know the Lord of the universe has an ability to do that. And the water held. And Peter's, you know, he's nobody's done this before other than Jesus. And he's why well, he's got to feel pretty good about himself. And then it says, He saw the wind blowing the waves. Now, how do you see the waves? For just an instant, took his eyes off of Jesus. Just an instant. And in just that instant, just the instant he took his eyes off of Jesus and saw the waves. Oops, woo, look what I'm doing. Woo. In that instant, bang, he started to go down. Now, it's at that place I learned to pray. Peter says, Oh, Lord, sovereign of the universe, almighty triune God, holy, 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 thou art holy. You are good. Did he pray that way? You know what he said? Help! <laughs> As he's going down. That's how I learned to pray. You just be honest with God. Peter prayed and he was rescued. But the point of that story is where we focus determines our ability to cope. Fourth principle. Fourth principle is in verses 8 and 9 of this chapter. Uh, And it just reminds us that this world, this world is not all there is. I, I, I feel so sorry for people that uh, are only seeing their IRAs, and I have IRA issues myself, and are only seeing their tax-sheltered annuities, and are only seeing you know, their jobs, and are only seeing some of the other things, and all of us, because we're human, we're in this common venture together, but that only see that, well, if I don't get it all in this life, then I, then I failed. If I haven't succeeded in this life, then I failed. And one of the things that Paul wants to do here is to turn both slaves and masters, wants to turn their eyes toward a future reward. And so in verse 8 he says, because you know, verse 8, the Lord will reward everyone. When's that going to happen? That's going to happen at the second coming. It's going to happen in the future. It's going to happen at the end of time. And then in verse 9 he says uh, to the masters, he says, Now be careful how you treat your slaves because uh, your master is in heaven. What difference does that make? Well, he's going to come down someday. There's a future life. There's something that we're going to see in the future that, that is going to be just as real as anything we've experienced in this life. The, the, the future is a part of our reality as Christians. It's not never, never land. It's not pretend. I was reading uh, an old sermon in a book uh, uh, by Cotton Mather, one of the old Puritan preachers in New England. I, I've been out in New England and I've seen his grave and all the Mather brothers and all the fathers and sons and so on. Cotton Mather wrote this they used to talk a little bit differently than we do today. This, this is the way his sermon went. I'll try to translate. It says, Alas, the vanity of human affairs. There are many men and things that are scarce mentioned in history which deserve a mention more than some that are universally celebrated. And I, I, I don't mean to sound unkind here, but I've just been watching. We, we've lost a a music icon within the past two years, a popular music icon. Every time I turned on the news, this popular music icon was just everywhere I looked. And I think, well, okay. You know, he if he's not a believer, and I don't know the state of his spiritual life, he's, if he's not a believer, that's all he'll get. That's all he'll get. He's gotten everything he will ever get. 
But he was mentioned. He was mentioned. And, and yet, my wife works in Reach Global with missionaries, and there's some unsung heroes on the mission field. And if they were to die, there'd be no story. There'd be no splash. There'd be no mark. I worked with a group of rural pastors just this past week in Chicago, and some of them are ministering in places just incredible. The one family has to drive a, a half a day to get to the nearest store to shop once a week. Oh, I couldn't do that. There are many men and things that are scarce mentioned in history, this Cotton Mather says, which deserve a mention far more than some that we universally celebrate. And then he says, and this is for all of us, there will be a resurrection of names, not just the bodies. All the good that you have done, every single bit of it, all your prayers, every time you pray, All the steps of your watchful walk with God. Every time, men, you turn from the billboard or the commercial not to see something you shouldn't be seeing. Every time, women, you you avoided some criticism or carping remark or comment. Every single effort of your watchful walk with God. All the brave efforts of yourself Denial. Did you give up something for the kingdom of God? All the continued desires, you couldn't even fill it. You, you couldn't even fulfill it. You couldn't, there's some things you wanted to do and you couldn't do, but you desired. All the continued desires to serve God and His people and your neighbors, they, being sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb, will be found in the Lord's book of remembrance. They shall be proclaimed in the golden streets of the city of God. Nothing, absolutely nothing in your Christian life is ever, 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 ever wasted or forgotten. And it will all receive an acknowledgement from Him and a reward in that future time. That's principle number four. Well, that's kind of the way I see the passage. And someone from a church uh, I used to pastor bumped into a hard spot in her life. She was a nurse. She used that hard thing to turn to one of the other nurses and provide an opportunity to share about Jesus Christ. We call that sharing our witness. And that's what she did with this. And the other lady said back to her, well, you can say what you will about your faith, but you just believe what you do because it's helpful. Did I miss something here? Now, I know what that lady was saying. There's a theory of truth that says there's no final truth that we only practice those things that help us called the pragmatic theory of truth. This lady was sharper than that. She said, you're right. What Christians believe, though, is not simply true. And though she didn't give up on the truth part. She says it's also tremendously helpful. So, what do we believe in the midst of difficulties that is both helpful and true 
or let me put it this way, helpful because it is true. Well, I think we believe at least four things. I think we believe in God's pattern that release within our circumstances often is better than removal from them. I think we believe that. I think we believe in God's love, that God not only loves us, but He's Lord over everything that could ever happen in my life. I think we believe in God's focus, that Jesus is bigger than any problem I will ever face. That's what Jason preached to us several weeks ago in one of his sermons. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is bigger. And I think we believe in God's future, that all of this world is a preparation for the next. That, I think, is how we live Christianly in a very difficult, hard, and harsh world. I encourage you to spend some time thinking through this passage and see if it doesn't resonate as as true with you. Now, after I've preached this sermon, I just every time I have to say, this is as hard for me to live as it is for you to hear. And so I just pray Augustine's prayer. And it's just this. Oh God, command what you will. I like that. Bring it on, he's saying. Bring it on. Oh God, command what you will. But Lord, give what you command. Give me the ability to accept, to receive, to live when you bring it on. Let's pray. Lord, uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for yourself. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the gift of life. Lord, I know there's a couple that's hurting today uh, at the depths of their soul. Would you speak into their pain? And I know there are people in this congregation that are struggling with problems. Lord, would you speak into their pain? And from your word, would you give them the strength they need to serve you more effectively, wisely, and well? In Jesus' name, amen.